Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your non-managers and individual contributors, please check out this year's latest offering, The Art of Being a Great Teammate. In this 12-month program, I'll be taking your non-managerial employees through this program, and that includes topics on communication, managing your boss, getting results without authority, customer service, problem solving, decision making, and much more. The sessions are virtual running one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoints, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take the program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. You know, we've always heard how important networking is. If you're somebody who is in between jobs or somebody who's relocating somewhere, networking helps you build connections. But what if we could look at networking even bigger at a much higher level? Well, our guest today, David Ehrlichman, focuses on just that. He's the co-founder and coordinator of Converge, which is a network of systems, strategists, designers, facilitators, educators, and evaluators that are committed to co-creating positive impact. He's the author of Impact Networks, Create Change, Spark Collaboration, and Catalyze Systemic Change, and producer of the documentary short Impact Networks, Creating Change in a Complex World. This is networking on an entirely different scale, and the stories he tells are really, really interesting. You're going to find how you can make real big changes by linking up with people that can help you do that. So let's quit talking about David. Let's talk to him. You know what time it is. Let's make sure the personal items under that seat in front of you. Make sure the seat belt is buckled low and across your hips. Time for us to take off. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. David Ehrlichman, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we could have you. It's uh, post-holiday. We're getting into 2022. And you are the author of the book, Impact Networks, Create Connections, Spark Collaboration, and Catalyze Systemic Changes, which sounds like a whole lot. I don't know what any of it means, but we're going to find out in our time together. So before we get into that and talk a little bit about what you're doing today, David, take us through your journey. So tell us how you got started and what you're working on today. Absolutely. Well, about 15 years ago, I was starting to think about how I wanted to spend my life and my work life. I knew that I wanted to work for purpose, uh, for impact somehow. So first thought I had was to work for a nonprofit and worked for an incredible nonprofit. They were uh, providing men and women without shelter uh, training and finding them jobs in the culinary industry, really changing their lives. But through that experience, I also recognized that this organization was working within this massive broken system. They were addressing the symptoms of this broken system. And I started to get really curious about how we could create impact, not just for individual people, but at a systemic level, how we could get to the root causes of some of these issues that lead to homelessness and poverty and all the other 
complex issues that we face. So I started to then later work at Monitor Institute, a social sector consulting firm to explore approaches to that. And soon thereafter, I recognized how some organizations were scaling their impact, not just by building a bigger and bigger organization, but really by scaling out instead of up, out through connections, out through collaborating with other organizations and stakeholders and communities who also cared about a similar issue as them. And I also started to become aware of networks or collaborations that brought multiple organizations together to address something bigger than anyone could address on their own. And these, these networks were actually intentionally staffed. They were really intentionally designed. They supported different individual leaders in their organizations to form relationships, to identify what common ground they shared, to dig into the places where they disagreed and all the conflict that was there as well. And then supporting their ability to find ways to immediately coordinate the work that they're already doing so that it's mutually reinforcing and there's not unnecessary duplication. And then take a systemic approach to look at the big picture collectively and say, if we moved on an aspect of this you know, through the collective power of our voice, is there something that we could do together that we couldn't do alone? Can we make bigger ripple effects that really affect the whole system and positively affect all of our work and the work that we're here to do? So that was the light bulb moment for me. Uh, I soon left my job and started working in Fresno, California as a coordinator for a network that brought together 48 different leaders from across all sectors to revitalize their city, bringing together folks like the county librarian and the school superintendent and the Spanish language talk show host and nonprofit leaders and education leaders and so forth to bring their differences to bear and also see that there was so much that they, they cared about that was the same. They all cared about Know, building a stronger city for the future, you know, cleaner air, safer streets. Sometimes they disagreed about how to go about that, but in creating the space and the opportunities for them to really build relationships and have conversations that they didn't usually have with people they didn't usually have them with, it was incredible to see the types of collaborations and projects that they came up with and the ways that they were able to support each other's work and the ways that these, these bonds that they formed really sustained into many other aspects of their work. So it not only made their own work more effective, it sustained them as individuals and they were able to do things collectively that really made a difference in the city. After that, I decided to dedicate my work to building networks for impact like that. And that led me to co-found Converge in 2013. And Converge is a network of people who support impact networks. And over the last eight or nine years since then, I've really been fortunate to work with over 50 different impact networks all around the world, all different kinds of issues, but all focused for purpose, social or environmental impacts of kind. And we've taken all of those learnings and conversations we've had with you know, over 40 different network leaders and, and then bringing different research from fields like community organizing and community development and network science and systems thinking to bear in this book, Impact Networks, because we want to give it all away. We really believe that this approach to creating change with 
relationships and connection with the primacy, finding the places where we have shared purpose and shared values, and then intentionally building structures, just enough structure to support our ability to connect and learn and take action together is really essential for the future that we want to create. That's where we are today. So in your role today, then, so what does an average day look like? Do you do people reach out to you and say, we have this cause and we're looking for the group that knows how to bring people together? Is that how it works? Essentially, yeah, we, we work in a few different ways. Sometimes we get brought in really at the conception phase where somebody sees an opportunity to increase collaboration or connectivity across the system for a common purpose. And then we are there from beginning to the point where we've brought people together, we've created spaces and convenings where people are able to come together and identify the places where they can work and they're getting value out of it. And we're building the structures around it. And then we build up the network to the point where it's really sustainable. It's creating value for individuals and for the system. And then we hire and train in local leaders to continue to support the network into the future as we disengage. So it's not dependent on us. So the vast majority of the networks we've worked with are still going to this day. We're just not as involved or we're advisors. In other cases, we get brought in as advisors to existing networks that are looking to boost the work that they're doing or they need facilitators, uh, which is kind of a key aspect of our work. The moments where people actually come together in a room, whether that's in person or virtually, and whether it's a dozen people or two dozen or many, many more, how do we design and facilitate these types of conversations that really get us to the things that we're looking to do? Uh, Sometimes we get brought in as advisors and then we really are a full service firm with respect to building networks. So we also do evaluation, uh, we will write case studies, uh, and we'll act as coordinators, the people at the center of these efforts to uh, support them. So when you, because you've used the word impact a lot, how do you, how do you define impact? Because I could make an impact and come to your meeting and say, I think this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. That would make an impact. I'm not quite sure that's the impact you're looking for. So do you have to come to agreement on what the impact's going to look like? That is very often one of the first steps is clarifying shared purpose. Why are we here? Uh, People will come for very different reasons, but often if you dig deep enough and you give people the time and the space they need to really share, not just what they're doing, but why, what are the underlying values and motivations behind that, we can find that even if we disagree on nine out of 10 things, there is a slice of common ground where we can agree and we can work for, move forward working on that aspect as we dig into the places where we disagree. So we create that foundation of shared purpose. And the next layer up is the shared principles that we have, the common values and how do we hold ourselves and each other accountable to those values. Uh, So yes, you could come in and and be a disruptive presence in a meeting, but actually we would take that and and use that as an opportunity to, to show how people in this space can really speak their mind and we won't agree on all the same things and that's okay conflict can really be a beautiful thing if it's generative if we turn towards the conflict and we allow uh, different folks to share their diverse perspective it's only through that that we can see the places where we have commonalities by sharing all of our different perspectives through divergence we can start to come to some convergence which then leads to something new so impact is really think of positive social and environmental change. What are the things that we could do on the complex social environment issues that we face? 
that will start to shift them in a right direction, in a sustainable or regenerative type direction. On these complex issues, there's not a clear beginning and end. You know, we're never going to say that we solved homelessness, but what we can do is start to shift it in a direction where we start to see changes at different levels of the system and for individuals. So you have a methodology that you're using, right? This isn't something that you just kind of wing at the time based on the input you're getting. Does it follow a pretty tight structure? It's really been fascinating that while the, the focuses of these, these networks and these collaborative efforts are very different, the people are really different, the organizations, the context, the, the geography, the country that we're working in, those are all different, but the process that's necessary to bring different groups together, to find where there's common ground, to start to work together is very consistent. And so, yes, we do have a really proven process for supporting multi-stakeholder collaboration. And that's what's contained in the book. That process has been developed through our experience working with dozens of these different networks, through our experience working with many other network leaders, being engaged in this field, uh, reading everything we can, uh, and coming to a, a recognizable process that can really be summarized in kind of five core activities. The first is clarify purpose and principles, as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Second is convene the people. So how do we actually bring people together to create connection, to build relationships, to have the conversations we need to have? And convening itself is a really special and precious moment. Those spaces where we bring people together in person or online to have these transformative type of events. They're not just another meeting. It's a, it's a different way of engaging with one another. The third is cultivate trust. Networks themselves at the most basic are just webs of relationships connecting people and things. So networks are only as strong as the connections that hold us together. And we build trust, not so that we like each other or not so that we agree with each other, but so that we can hold the tension through the inevitable disagreements and miscommunications we're going to have. So we can hold the tension through that long enough that we can find that slice of common ground, or at least have a greater appreciation for each other's perspectives and be willing and open to not only share our own perspectives, but hear perspectives that might differ from our own. The fourth is coordinating actions. So what are the things that are already happening? What are you already doing that we can build on? How can we support each other's work? How can we increase the flow of information and resources so that our actions are mutually reinforcing? It's not unnecessary duplication. And then the fifth is collaborate for systems change, which means taking a systemic view, bringing our different understandings of the complex issue to bear, seeing the big picture, really starting to recognize where are their leverage points in the system? Are there places where you know, a collective effort or a focused push could really create positive effects throughout the whole system and throughout all of our work? So we bring systems thinking, systems analysis to that work to, to identify where we can collaborate for systems change. And then around that, last thing I would say is it's creating the enabling infrastructure. So a lot of collaborations will focus on building structure first. We identify the, the measurable outcomes, you know, well in advance that we, that we want to achieve, but that's not the right approach when we're addressing these types of issues where there's not a clear beginning and end, and we don't really know 
how to solve the issue. There's not priors that we can relate to. Uh, we need to start with the relationships. We need to start with the, the, the conversations that lead to a shared understanding of what's even going on. And then we need to, to be emergent. So we're building structure so that form follows function. The structure follows the types of activities and the types of actions that people are actually interested in doing and where they see an opportunity to create change. So the enabling structure is things like how do we make collective decisions? What is participation look like? What commitments are we making with one another? How are we evaluating our progress as we start to identify the things that we want to do? And so it's building just, just enough structure to continue to support our ability to connect and communicate and work together over time and not too much to stifle the, the creativity of the participants. And you also kind of mentioned sort of the balance because you guys are going to help set this up, but then you got to get out of there, right? Because otherwise there's I mean, it seems like at some point they would become dependent on you. Like, oh, well, David's not at the meeting, so we're not going to meet today, right? Exactly. Uh, we never want it to be dependent on us. So from the very beginning, we're always looking to train and support the local leaders who can continue these efforts moving forward. So that's we stand shoulder to shoulder with the people who are there in the system and and really want to be you know, their, their advocates and uh, their supporters. And that's led us to some of this more kind of field building type work that we're doing in terms of writing the book. You know, we released, we have a number of different network leadership trainings. Uh, we have different ways of engaging with network leaders. We create networks of network leaders so that they support each other in communities of practice. Uh, but you're right, from the very beginning, it's always you know, making ourselves obsolete, trying to work ourselves out of a job so these efforts can continue and flourish and supported by local leaders, not dependent on us. This might be a hard question to answer because you've probably, I don't know if it can be answered, but do you find there's a percentage of these initiatives that you start that they just, they get three quarters through and then they just fade or do most of them kind of go all the way through? Where do you see, is there a percentage that you see absolutely makes it? It's hard to put an exact percentage, but I will say that why the, these efforts may fade for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's that they don't have strong enough relationships. It's that they're starting with the action. We're trying to jump to action so quickly, we forget about the importance of actually building relationships and having conversations we don't normally have. Now, that's really what sustains, even if the formal activities of the network were to stop, if we build relationships and share understanding and find ways to support each other, that's going to sustain into the future. That's going to continue to impact the way that we work individually and collectively. Uh, another thing that, that often gets in the way is personality conflicts at mm -hmm. the top, uh, and which is why we you know, really try to address conflict head on and, and why we take the time to build those relationships and why finding shared purpose and shared principles is so important. And, and then some efforts just naturally sunset. And that's okay. You know, we want to make that okay. These don't have to necessarily persist into perpetuity. Sometimes they come together at a catalytic moment and there's, there's a specific opportunity or threat that they're dealing with. And we can come together for a year or two uh, to see what might be possible together and to take advantage of that catalytic moment. And then we don't need to continue to put resources in terms of time or money or whatever it else might be into this effort. You know, we can trust our, that if an opportunity or threat came up again, we've built enough connective tissue so that it's much easier than to come back together 
and, and to reinvigorate something like that. And so time-bound networks are something that I'm more and more interested in advocating for and pursuing uh, to make it okay for these efforts to, to have that you know, whirlwind moment and then you know, we can reconvene in the future if necessary. So, you know, you've mentioned conflict a few times. Do you find in your experience when it's conflict with individuals, is it because one is super passionate and the other's not as much? Is it 10 people all equally passionate about different things? Is it a bunch of people that were told you need to participate in this thing and didn't really want to do it? Where do you normally see most of it bubble from? Most commonly, it's, it's that people see each other as the competition or the enemy because of preconceived notions they have or because of actions their organizations have taken or stances they've taken publicly that brings them into conflict with one another as an organization, but they haven't actually taken the opportunity to, to really go deep enough with each other to understand their underlying motivations and find places where they do agree. Just one example, you know, working in Santa Cruz Mountains region for three years and building up the Santa Cruz Mountain Stewardship Network, which just uh, to pause what this is, it's a, an effort to steward or care for half a million acres of land south of San Francisco, west of San Jose. How do you care for a large landscape like that? You have to take a systemic approach because these large landscapes, they're managed and owned by these overlapping cross-section of you know, government agencies, local, state, federal, land trusts, nonprofit organizations, academic institutions, and also timber companies and tribal groups. And in this region, there were really significant tensions when we got brought in early on between particular of the timber company and, and an organization whose mission is to stop all redwoods from being cut. Uh, and there were real tensions there uh, and legitimate tensions. What happened is when they took the time to really understand each other's underlying motivations, they, they recognized that, well, first of all, Santa Cruz has some of the most strict sustainable timber practices and regulations in the entire world. And this timber company, really kind of unbeknownst to the other organizations, were practicing really sustainable timber harvesting. And that it's actually quite necessary to, to harvest trees in the right way to reduce the risk of catastrophic, catastrophic wildfire. Uh, you know, intentional uh, pruning is, is really an important part of it. They're not cutting down the, the old growth redwoods. They have a sustainable practice of cutting down redwoods. And uh, they, they also recognize that they shared a lot of concerns. They shared concerns of you know, invasive property development. Uh, they shared concerns of catastrophic wildfire. Uh, they, they both felt that there was you know, unnecessary, unnecessarily burdensome regulation and permitting processes that got in their way of doing the type of ecological restoration that was necessary. Uh, so they started there. There was a lot that they agreed about and they could start to work together on those issues. And they did start to work together and they started to actually identify places where uh, the the nonprofit organization and, and the timber company were working together to steward different aspects of land. And by also being part of this larger effort that looked at the whole system, started to see that what does good stewardship look like at a landscape level? Well, it means a mosaic approach that 
Over here is going to be the right place for sustainable timber. Over here is going to be the right place for preservation. This is a place where we need to actually restore the creek bed. We can take sort of a mosaic approach, right? It's not going to be kind of a uniform strategy for the entire landscape. That foundation of shared understanding and, and getting to know each other as humans, you know, their, their, their stories, their background, why they do what they do, it changes the nature of, of then how people work together. They they start to reach out to each other if there's you know a disagreement or a conflict. They just call each other up on the phone uh, instead of you know going behind their backs or whatnot. Uh, they you know they they're upfront if they have issues with one another, uh, and they it's created a, a different way of relating to one another. So so often it's because we haven't taken the time to really understand where each other is coming from and, and build those relationships at a human, a human level. What I'll also say though, is that power dynamics are always present. There are always groups who you know, have more funding or less funding or you know, groups who have been historically marginalized and oppressed by other groups. Uh, and you don't want to sweep power under the rug. It's always present. There are ways to, to manage you know, power dynamics and to, to acknowledge power and to shift our understanding of power from you know, power over and against to you know, power with and power among. Uh, we're, we're creating, building collective power for the things that we, that we care about collectively. But you've mentioned some pretty big macro level projects. Do you guys ever get called in? Because, you know, what you've described on a macro level is in my world, most organizations, power, you know, structures that are out of sync, too many people too passionate about one thing. And then they sit in a meeting and everybody nods. And when it's done, they say that was a waste of my time. Do you, do you all ever focus on that level of solving problems as an internal network? Can you give me an example of what that, what that might look like? Well, I mean, let's say, for example, that there's going to be some new initiative that an organization has, and it involves everybody in the organization having to change procedures to get to that. And mm -hmm. everybody's holding on to their own territory, which is very common in large organizations. Right. It's, it sounds very similar to when you mentioned Fresno, California, or, you know, taking care of the, the Redwoods. You know, everybody, they all, they all think they're going in the same direction. But in fact, most of them are internally tuned, which leads to conflict and stress and, you know, lack of trust. This is all what happens in a large portion of organizations today. Not that they, you could say they're dysfunctional any more than you could say the timber people and the activists are dysfunctional. They all care. They care so much that, in fact, it can actually be detrimental. So with something like that, is that an area that is, you know, it, would you all be working in something like that as well? Or do you focus maybe on the big level? No, you're right. I've been talking mostly about uh, multi-organizational networks, but but networks are present within organizations, within organizational systems as well. And actually, the the quality of connections and flows of information within organizations have a huge impact on their on their performance, their ability to share resources in the right way. Uh, for a couple of examples, in this case, the, we've worked with uh, UCSF Health System to create a network that connects their 12 sites and 10 health disciplines to put palliative care at the center and have whole person care. It's more than just physical care, it's social, emotional, mental, spiritual well-being. Uh, to spread that throughout this large, massive system 
but it's contained within a single organization that has many different sites and disciplines. You know, Google has used a network approach to, to connect different people from, from across its organization, different departments, uh, and also outside experts around food systems issues that they really care about. I and mean, with the number of people that Google just feeds internally through its cafeterias can have a huge impact on where they source their food. And there's a lot of people there that really care about that and, and want to engage on that. And so they've created an internal network to address an issue that the existing structure isn't well suited for. Uh, so absolutely, within organizations, networks are always present. We can always think about how to strengthen the internal system as well. It seems like the most effective way because it sounds as though everybody will at least have the chance to be heard. And maybe that's what creates some of that tension. Mm -hmm. Well, David, our audience are primarily HR professionals. And in many cases, this is what happens. They say, we're doing this initiative, HR, make sure everybody's on board. Well, hell, how in the world are you going to do that if you don't have a full understanding of even the networks there? So for those who are listening today, if they say, wow, I, I really need this approach. I have been put in charge of this major initiative. I don't want to try to wing it on my own. David, how do people reach your organization? And maybe more importantly, how do they get a copy of that book? You can go to our website, converge.net. And I encourage you to do so because we have so many free resources on there. We like to open source everything we do. We, we have free resources under a Creative Commons license that you can use, you can adapt to your own approaches. We also converge.net slash book. You can get a copy of the book. And right around this time that this podcast will be released, we have a, a documentary short on impact networks that takes the stories of six network leaders around the world and how they've applied this work. Uh, I also uh, want to share that we have different training offerings now for network leaders, whatever that may be. It may be HR professionals that may be uh, folks who are working across organizations, but it's all about how we connect people together in ways that strengthen our ability to connect, learn, and take action together on, on issues we care about. And we have free webinars, we have three-hour workshops, and, and we have then a longer eight-session training course uh, called the Network Leadership Series. Uh, so that's all at converge.net. Awesome. Well, listen, David, thank you so much for taking time to uh, get up early and chat with us this morning. If you're listening to this today, please reach out to converge.net um, with these resources. You're going to find that you can probably get your initiative through a whole lot better by collaborating well with others. David, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well. <laughs>